0: The cool, La court.
1: Bonjour, Please be seated. Yves et al., and Agence du Revenu du Québec for the appellant, Yves Desgroseillers, et al., Dominique C. Belly, Catherine Dubé, Nicolas Benoît-Gay, and Maren Gervais-Cloutier. For the respondent, Agence du Revenu du Québec, Normand Perrault and Gabriel Derry. Mr. Belly? Chief Justice, Justices, I provided a condensed book. I believe uh, you received it. In the condensed book, you will find the excerpts that I'll be referring to this morning. In tabs four and five, You will find excerpts from the Act, the Federal and Quebec Acts in French and in English. And subject to your questions, those are the two tabs that I'll be referring to. Both parties agree that the provincial and federal laws are harmonized in the respondents factum in paragraph 71 re- invites you to apply section 442 that is the equivalent to the federal 69 all income including employment income the they rely solely on a 1981 decision that does not have to do with 69-1-b-i-i, which is the section that is raised, that is referred to here. The Quebec Court of Appeal took almost the exact same approach, applies sections 482 and 69 to all types of income citing one authority, David Duff, with one difference in the Court of Appeal, they said 482 and 69 applies to all types of income, including employment income, whereas the Duff article never refers to employment income. If this court espouses the respondents Arguments and if you decide that 482 and 69 apply to all types of employment income, then we will fall into the unknown. Nothing has been presented up to now to support that argument. Furthermore, the economic impact for donors and for recipients of donations, charities, and all of the causes that they support. The impacts are completely unknown, but nevertheless. That is what the Respondent and the Court of Appeal of Quebec are arguing and argued that we must do, with no authorities whatsoever. The Respondent argues that, on the one hand, Section 50, Part 6 of uh, the Quebec Act, which is the equivalent of section 7 of the Federal Act, they argue that that section and section 482 from the Quebec Act and 69 in the Federal Act, they are arguing that those two sections were conceived to apply to each other from the outset they will attempt to convince you that everything should lead to that conclusion, that 50 must necessarily apply along with 482. However, in reality, Provincial Section 6 and Federal Section 7 entered into force in 1953 at a time when There was no capital gains tax in Canada. The legislator decided to excise the advantages, the benefits from stock options from employment income. That was the decision that was made by the legislator in 1953, largely as a response to a decision by Lord Atkins, supported by Lord Tompkins, which is uh, the Selman decision. In 1972, after the Carter Commission report, the legislator decided to tax capital gains and at that point 482691bii which targets donations that is when those sections came into force in 1972 the legislator no longer had the same concerns as his 1953 because in 1953 capital gains was taxed. The legislator in 1972 could have excised employment income and put them into the other sphere. If the legislator had done so, then the law would be completely coherent. But in 1972 the legislator chose to leave taxation of options in employment income and put in section 69 a taxation on donations that have to do with capital gains. I prepared a plan for my arguments today but I would be happy to answer your questions. I'll talk about assessment. I would also like to talk about the similarities and the differences in the party's arguments. This case is not exactly the same one as it was at the very beginning. A few elements were completely settled and that will help us focus on the handful of issues that require decision. Question. I hope you won't neglect the issue of the interpretation of the tax law, which is really at the core of this debate. The interpretation according to uh, this court of sections 422, 50 and 54. Answer. I will do so. An- a Question. Good, because that was part of the Court of Appeal decision. The Court of Appeal focused on that and and made a different interpretation of what you're putting forward. And of course you'll have time to discuss this, but the Court of Appeal... dealt with uh, Justice Cournoyer's comment that 54 gives precedence to the application of 49 and following and other sections providing a taxation rule that is at the heart of his reasoning and it means the Quebec Revenue Agency can rely on certain presumptions for its calculation. Answer. If I start with the the basic assessment, because that is at the root of everything, in our system there can't be taxation without income. And there can't be income without a source. And here the source of income identified by the Revenue Agency, is employment, so there's taxation on employment income. Question. Forgive me for interrupting, but that is the benefit, the benefit related to his employment, and you see that in Justice Cournoyer's Reasons. It's at the heart of his reading of this tax law. Answer. Absolutely. If we look at section 50, which you'll find at tab 4, page 65, it says, An employee who transfers or disposes of rights is deemed to have received in the year during which they receive uh, the benefit the amount exceeding the amount. And so what can we learn from this? First of all, the taxpayer has the right to file their tax return and be taxed according to the word of the law. And second of all, there's no question of of reinterpreting what is in effect here. So there's no controversy here. The options were donated the taxpayer received no consideration, no sum of money when the rights were alienated? Question. Yes, but he received a tax credit for the fair market value and that reasoning is perfectly consistent with 482. How Can you reconcile the fact that he received a tax credit to that value for his donation, but that the transaction itself would not also be taxed at its fair market value? Answer. You're absolutely right. Now, first of all, the eligibility of the tax credit, the amount of the charitable receipt, none of that was uh, controversial in any way. And of course there could have been uh, an entire debate just about that. It could have raised all sorts of questions, but in reality the validity of the charitable receipt and the quantum of the receipt were not at issue. Why? because the recipient of the donation, the charitable organization, is outside the scope of Section 7. It isn't an employee receiving a stock option. This organization receives received a cheque for $3 million. And so we have to look at the exact amount of money that the recipient received that's to establish the quantum of the charitable receipt and when it comes to that issue both parties are on the same page now if i understood your question correctly you want to know how is it possible to receive a charitable receipt for three million dollars but not include the three million question yes it's a Uh, A question about the consideration, he received something, he received a tax credit. So what is the consideration? It is consistent with section 482. Answer. We can't say that the tax receipt is a consideration for the donation. And the revenue agency agrees. Again, this could have been up for debate, but the jurisprudence is unanimous. Receiving a receipt, receiving a tax credit is a legal consequence that follows uh, the Quebec Act question. I think that's uh, where the issue is. Justice Cournoyer explains this pretty clearly. You can't just rely on a restricted view of one section, you have to look at how all the sections uh, work together. And when you do that, you consider that on the one hand you have a tax credit, and yes, I agree, you can isolate that, but at the same time, it's difficult to conceive that you could benefit from a tax credit, on the one hand, for a substantial amount, and then not have a deemed income. I think that's the issue, don't you think? Yes, it
2: is difficult to conceive because the but since the legislator conceived it themselves. If you look here, can you have a tax credit without there be an inclusion? No problem there. The legislator themselves foresaw that. So except as- and you said it yourself earlier quickly in uh, quoting 50, the true uh, True consideration isn't isn't there. I will try to answer all of your questions and looking at your consideration. uh, And, Mr. Chief uh, Chief Justice, I I promise you this is something that I do want to cover. Uh, Justice Cazerère, if we compare 50 to 50, 50 is on page 65 and 52.1 is on page 66 in the in, in the Book of 52. Authorities, in the condensed,
3: uh,
2: so this is 50.1 is referred to by saying, uh, and this is the proof that 54 is not a complete code. First of all, let us define complete code. We never claimed that Section 6 was a complete code and that we only sh- should be looking at Section 6 only to, simply to convince ourselves if there's an option there has to be stock and in which case there have to be there have to be something that exists outside of the income tax act so if we look at section six and section 6 only section six only then must we calculate the benefit that is related to the stock option regime so. Uh, in 54, this is what 54 tells us in seven a as well. Now, the respondent for the first time in their brief refers to 52.1. And in an attempt to convince you that 52.1 provides the evidence that 54 is not a complete code. Let's look at 52.1 since once again the words are important. Where an employee uh, was the owner, when an uh, when when employee has died, immediately before the death the employee owned a right to acquire security under the occurm- agreement referred to in section 48, the employee is deemed to have received because of the employee's office of employment in the taxation year in which the employee died a benefit equal to the amount by which the value of the right immediately after the death exceeds the amount paid by the employee to acquire the right and sections 50 to 52.0.1 do not apply. So here, if I compare 52.1 with 50, in, our, in 50, an employee who in, an employee who transfers or disposes of rights under the agreement deferred is deemed to receive, in the taxation year, a benefit equal to the amount by which the value of consideration for the transfer exceeds the amount paid by the employee. That would be perfect. If the words used were the used, the words used in 52.1, a benefit equal to the amount by which the value of the right, whereas the words used here in 50 is equal to the, uh, is when the value of consideration exceeds the amount paid by the employee. So, we know that this is drafted in full knowledge of 50 since it refers to Section 50, this is a very interesting issue because when we look at where 69 c- b ii comes from, it comes from the 1972 reform, it comes from the introduction of capital gains tax. I will refer you to tab 17 of my condensed book on page 51 indeed it's the last it's the last page at that tab we're talking about tab 17 of our condensed book and page
3: 51 Hp, uh, it's,
2: the, the page number is 275. We're, we're looking at the last page at, of tab 17. Alors, commission Carter. The Commission, at the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 1970s, in the, be, uh, in the middle of this paragraph, tells us,
4: Donc, pour des raisons d'équité envers les contribuables et pour réduire les désavantages économiques, nous recommandons que lorsqu'une personne fasse un don de propriété ou euh, ne soit plus résident canadien, il soit réputé avoir fait une disposition de cette propriété, de ce bien.
3: Alors, quand je suis propriétaire d'une... Qui est à être sur plusieurs
2: L'accroissement de that is meant to be held for several years, the increase of the value of that property means that theoretically, I am enriching, enriching myself, both fiscally and legally.
3: There would only be
2: an enrichment when, at the moment, when I actually dispose of this property. The Carter Commission says that at a certain point we're going to need a cutoff point because we do not want taxpayers who are property owners, which may have, may be of sumptuous value, just keep holding on to them and perhaps that wealth will never be taxed. This is the logic of 1972. So we're told that one of the cutoffs is when the taxpayer ceases to be a Canadian resident. When the taxpayer ceases to be a Canadian resident, what rule should we create to dispose of all of their goods, all of their property? So you have a general rule in the statute that deals with the deemed disposition of property once the the taxpayer ceases to be a Canadian resident. In a remarkable manner, we can see, we can find a a specific rule at 52.1 which also deals with that same situation. We have the general case of the disposition of all of one's property once, if one ceases to be a resident, a Canadian resident. And then here's a very specific one within Section 6, which specifically deals with this situation. So the legislator is aware of the general rule, it doesn't apply. Here they've created a specific rule in which they say we're aware that when the taxpayer ceases to be a Canadian resident. They will no longer have, they they will not have true consideration. They will continue to own that property, but will be taxed on that property despite the lack of true consideration. And what word is being used here? The value of the right. In 50, there's a situation in which there is not a hypothetical disposition, but rather, a true disposition. And the legislator in 50, aware of the words being used in 52.1, uses the value of the consideration. So it would have been very, very simple to have simply 50 that has to do with disposition, with consideration, and then use the value of the consideration, A, and B,
3: donation, value
2: of the right. You would be in exactly the situation that we have before us today. Did you have a question, Justice? I I understand what you're saying,
0: but the logic, if I've correctly understood it, by
2: the Agence Revenue and uh, uh, Justice Cournoyer, it was to make a distinction between the taxation law – the taxation rule, rather – and the calculation. When you talk about true consideration, I'm not sure which side of the fence you're positioning yourself. I haven't asked the question yet. You may ask a a question that hasn't been asked if you wish, but –
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but you
2: recognize that you received a benefit.
0: No, a benefit. I believe, I thought your position was that,
2: well, there was a benefit. Difficult to oppose that in reading 50 and 54. The calculation of the benefit is reduced to zero.
0: Yes, but that nuance,
2: and I'm saying so in a friendly way, we're not quite sure if you're positioning yourself on the side of a benefit or uh, true consider, real consideration. I understand that you're not really challenging that that a benefit was received, but you'll recall that the benefit equals zero and that according to you, 50 and 54 set aside the presumption in
0: 422,
2: Fundamentally, that's your position.
0: So, this is where Justice Cournoyer asks
2: us to read the text and the, and consider the context and the teleology of the fiscal legislation. I really would like to hear your thoughts on that
0: personally, because according
2: to the reading of the
0: provisions
2: by the Justice Cournoyer, if you look at his grounds, he exposes a way of interpreting the texts in a harmonious way, as harmonized, that is, and he does go after these, uh, Complete code notion. So I'd like to hear your, your comments on that. I believe that situation is resolved in Markovic, and Justice Kohnmayr in the Court of Appeal, in paragraph 68, refers to Markovic.
1: Markovic, and uh, uh, I just made eye contact with you, Justice. So I'll
2: come back to you, to you, when I'm done.
3: Markovic. Yes, please go ahead. Markovich tells us that the Income Tax
2: Act and the Taxation Act are not complete codes in the sense that they must be interpreted,
3: they must be applied
2: by referring to common law and the general disposition rules. For example, if a trust is a taxpayer in the fiscal sense, we wonder, does the trust exist? Was it properly set up and maintained uh, as per the civil code and common law?
3: So in that sense, the Income
2: Tax Act is not a complete code because of the choice made by the legislator. To re- he, uh, they remained silent. They use the word trust, but they leave the definition of trust up to the general statutes. This is a choice made by the legislator to remain silent on that issue. In markovich the legislator was silent as to the prescribed period to recover fiscal debts. The thesis advanced by the, the Minister was that the legislator's silence means that there is no prescriptive period. This court's decision was to say, no, the legislator's silence means that we will draw inspiration from the prescribed periods outside of the law, including provincial statutes. Following your des- your decision in Markovic, a decision was made to amend the, the legislation and to foresee uh, to, to to stipulate a ten-year period. So we can no longer say that the legislature is sound since the legislature has spoken and stipulated a ten-year prescription prescribed period.
3: Now that is the complete
2: uh, code mentioned in Markovic. Now within the fiscal legislation, certain aspects may be complete
3: codes.
1: You discussed the scope of the anti-avoidance law, and one of the basic rules underpinning that is that you can amend an act over and over, but you still need a provision that will allow us to catch situations that were unexpected. So we need a general rule that allows for taxation despite unpredictable situations arising. When the legislator creates a complete code to calculate employment benefits stemming from a stock option scheme we have to give full effect to the legislator's words why because the legislator says the benefit will only be the benefit provided in the section of the act why is that because the legislator wants to protect itself Against the impact, the unpredictable impacts of any amendments elsewhere in the law. Question I did not understand Markovich in the same way. I thought the expression "complete code" was used to illustrate that there was an objective to avoid double taxation, to carry over the, any amendments. But when it comes to the calculus, Justice Cournoyer, and you probably argued this uh, before him in 170, Justice Cournoyer says, in fact, the code is not so complete and hermetic that 482 cannot be applied. It, in fact, the completeness of the code does not apply from wall to wall answer well my interpretation is in paragraph 14 which is at tab 13 of my tab nothing supports the theory according to which the Income Tax Act is a complete code and it does not apply in a legislative void. And in section 15 on the following page, paragraph 15 rather, the legislator's silence in relation to the limitation period allows us to infer that the general provisions apply to the ministry's power to tax, and so my interpretation is that you have to look for an answer elsewhere when the legislator fills the silence with information then you have to give effect to those words in this case the legislator could have chosen not to include 54 7 3a in the federal act and could have said "I'll oh, just let the other provisions apply however in this case the legislator is telling us the only benefit linked to employment that has to be included in income will be calculated at section 6 similarly without 54 what would stop us from saying well we also have 38 39 40 that could apply potentially and lead to capital gains there's also 151 because here we have an employee who could also be a shareholder and this person might receive an a benefit in the stock options and at that time if the person is also a shareholder that then they would be receiving a benefit and it would be taxed under section 15 so when the legislators tells us let's focus let's crystallize the benefit within this section we mustn't look elsewhere because it would be possible to identify many other provisions where it would apply. We could certainly develop an argument stating that the option is not a capital benefit and the benefit stemming from the stock option scheme is a benefit under Section 9. But 422 doesn't mention that. It can't work alone. Answer. No, but what I'm saying is that without 54, one could imagine a series of sections where a benefit stemming from a stock option scheme could be deemed to be an employment benefit. Question. That's, that was my argument. Answer. Well, that's what they claim. So I have two answers to that. First of all, supposing that they're right, supposing Suppose that the objective of 54 is to avoid double taxation. That still doesn't guarantee taxation. It's impossible to contradict that. If you look at your decision in Delta, if you look at all of the tax laws, and the tax agreements uh, that exist, the objective is always to avoid double taxation. If you look at all of that, you can easily come to the conclusion that there is no double taxation and there is no guarantee of taxation. Now, if my friend is correct and the objective is simply to avoid double taxation, Well, avoiding double taxation does not guarantee that there will be taxation. Secondly, it is hard for me to understand how trying to avoid double taxation would lead us to include in employment income for a taxpayer who has lost income because this taxpayer never received $3 million, never even had the right to, to receive $3 million. The only reason this $3 million exists is because the option for this taxpayer was, was uh, exercised. At no point in time was the taxpayer in question allowed to receive any uh, amount of money, any $3 million, and that's very important for your purpose of analysis here. How can we analyze the taxes that he has to pay if he hasn't enjoyed any economic benefit i think it's very important to understand uh, what my friend is saying and we have to be specific in terms when the option is granted it is granted based on the market value so when the uh, option is granted if it's worth ten dollars then i have to pay ten dollars to exercise that option so there's no economic benefit there. The only way of getting any economic benefit under the scheme and under the act is if the shares increase in value over time and if the option is exercised. When the option is exercised and the three million dollars begins to exist, then the taxpayer is no longer Uh, the owner of those shares, and will never have a right to that sum of money. This court in Savage, that you'll find at tab 16 of my condensed book, was crystal clear. This was Justice Nixon, page 239. For there to uh, forgive me you are right chief justice it's tab 15 page
3: 239 oh. there's an economic benefit on the taxpayer and on parle d'un, a benefit received or enjoyed.
1: You see, here, clearly the taxpayer never received $3 million, never benefited from $3 million, but will necessarily have to pay tax on that following the minister's theory with money he never received that he will never receive in the future which is contrary not only to the general economy of uh, the act we whose goal is for a taxpayer to pay tax on sums that are received on income that is received that is clear in savage and it is also very clear if you look at Section 6 and, and Section 7 in the Federal Act. Whether we're talking about regular employment income or income from a stock option scheme, the legislator's goal is to make sure that tax is paid on actual income. So there's a binary approach here. We have private companies under Canadian control and other companies. So bigger companies, bigger publicly traded companies like the one uh, in the case at Bar and then smaller Canadian controlled corporations. When it comes to publicly traded or listed corporations, the inclusion of the benefit in employment income takes place when the option is exercised. So from the moment the employee is the holder of the shares, the shares exist on the market and can be transformed into Canadian dollars almost instantly. Of course, there's the issue of fluctuation. You can choose to keep your shares for longer, but exercising the option which stems from a publicly listed corporation, is included in income, and is taxed when the sh- the, when it is converted into a share, when it is exercised. If you compare that to the legislator's d- decision when it comes to private companies under Canadian control, companies that are not listed, where it is much more difficult to sell shares, there's no public... Uh, market, sometimes you have to get the consent of the board. When the option is exercised, when you acquire the option, the legislator says we don't consider that you have a benefit that can be converted into cash. We will therefore tax you not when you receive the option, but when it is transformed into a share and therefore into Canadian dollars. And that is the point at which you have the money to pay tax that is due. Question, but that that is a deemed benefit. That is the starting point here. You raise an interesting theoretical question on the options on the timing and all that, but when you look at 422, we're not talking about deemed calculus here. I thought we were elsewhere than in general theory here. Answer, Justice Kazir, when I look at 54, when I look at the the text of 54, and I'll take, uh, you can look at either the French or the English versions,
3: Taxpayer, the employee is deemed to receive to receive no benefit under or because of the agreement other than as provided in this section. Alors, et ça, quand je so
2: when I look 54, at 54 or 73a, le même it's exactly the same language.
3: No further la
2: benefit than that. Uh, no benefit in, other than as, provided, then, as provided in this division. Federal, federal levels have de- deemed to have received no benefit unless otherwise
3: uh, stipulated in this section. this section. So,
2: according to the words used by the legislator, we must establish calculate and crystallize the benefit in, in article 6 at the provincial level or in section 7 in the federal statute and how seven and how that provision rather was interpreted and which scope what scope was given it well we reproduce that in our book of authorities which I think uh, ha, has been extensively listed has extensively listed uh, every decision made by Courts as when it comes to Section 7. To my mind, the uh, the clearest description comes from the Bowman decision in the Tax Court of Canada. This is paragraph 31, and the Chief Justice Bowman says that he concludes that there is
3: no need to include the benefit
2: under Article 7.1b and concludes that the inclusion of the benefit under 7.1b in the case of the taxpayer is zero. And cons- continues by saying course
3: propel the taxpayer into Section 6. Donc, on le montant so if we look at the amount Provided, that is provided,
2: six, provided in uh, uh, Article 6 and Section 7, that si amount.
3: If we look
2: at, if we, if we on arrive on at the conclusion that this is a positive number, number if we conclude that it's, uh, that the number is zero, then we know there is no need to look s- elsewhere,
3: soin au and
2: it's up to the legislator in that case, to amend the legislation in a very simple manner. If we look at 52.1, the Federal, Provincial, English, French, no matter, it's unanimous. Everyone talks about value of the right, which is why it's important, if you look at paragraph 67 of the Court of Appeal decision uh, by Justice Colnoilly, in which he says that the contextual interpretation principle
0: uh, demands that we consider
2: each element and all the elements together, which is why, uh, he concluded that uh, 422 applied. Chief Justice, since you're providing me with the opportunity, please allow me to respond to the question you asked earlier. Can there be a tax credit without inclusion? The Court of Appeal tells us in paragraph 10, and that is in a, a tab 3 of my condensed book. The Court of Appeal states that a taxpayer cannot receive both a tax credit following a uh, donation of stock options to charity according to the fair market value and oppose the disposition of the goods be, that the disposition of the goods be uh, at the fair market value under 422. Uh, and a little lower in the same, in the same paragraph. uh, The opposite conclusion would provide the taxpayer with a tax credit for donated options, uh, stock options without attributing an income under the exercise of those, those, those same stock options without attributing an income related to the, ex- the the exercise of those same stock options. So the legislator covered that situation. If we exercise a stock option, and therefore we no longer own the, the option, we own the stock, that the attribution will have, uh, will have a consequence. There will be a historical fair market value attributed to the stock, and the legislator has not Spoken uh, has not said that this needs to be included in the income. Legislator goes further. Let's say that the the money uh, the the stock option is exercised. The the person takes the money and donates the money within a certain time period. Then there would not be any inclusion of uh, their income into their income either. And the legislator stipulates that in this in the legislation. And that's precisely what the court of appeal provides for, as a principle, without including the income. So the legislator has provided for that situation. Today's situation,
3: uh,
2: what is the respondent's position? The the respondent's position is that we should include the deemed portion in your income. That is the, uh, their position. I have a question. Please go ahead. Question. Could you identify another donation that would not be taxed at its fair market value? Madame Justice, 69
3: 1B II, if
2: we look at its legislative context and historical context. In 1972, This takes place uh, because they want to tax capital gains and they wish to avoid a situation in which capital gains tax can be avoided forever. It makes eminent sense to me that when there is a donation of a property, of a piece of property, that there be a deemed consideration. And this is what the legislator chose. That is the conclusion of the Carter Commission that was reflected in the legislation. But here, in the same year, 1972, they could have taken the stock option system and included in the employment income. And it would, that would be important because before 1972, there was no uh, capital tax gains. So they could have said, we'll repatriate this into capital gains. And then automatically, the harmonious application of 69.1b to uh, II would have applied to donations as well. No problem. But the stock options system is left in the employment system, So donations are not discussed, but the deemed disposition is discussed for those, for taxpayers who cease to become Canadian residents. Now that, in in that case, they want it to be included in employment income, whereas outside of Article 6, there is a general disposition a general provision rather, that would have covered it. We so, if we had chose to, if they, cho- if the legislator chose to do it that way, it's because they wanted to crystallize the quantum of the benefit to take place in one place only. Chief Justice, I would like to come back
3: to a broader statement,
2: which is, do, does the taxpayer have a right to a tax credit if they are if they do not have an inclusion at the same time. So in the income tax act there has to be a mirror between what is included and what is deducted, between what is taxed and what is credited. The answer is no, and there there are many examples I could provide. The first one I, I can provide in the context of business income is that what it will be taxed is not necessarily what will be distributed? In this is a con- this is an accounting context, an accrual context, context, not cash,
3: not cash the
2: accounting, and so you're you were not you're not going to see a mirror effect in the, in that case between the company's income and the uh, associate's income. Now, in this case, the legislator chose to proceed that way. There is no mirror effect, mirroring effect. If I purchase a beautiful house worth a million dollars and the real estate market means that over the years it's now worth two or three million, four million dollars even, and I dispose of my, of my house, then I will have right, uh, I will be exonerated because it's my principal residence. I will not pay tax on the sale of that house, at the same time as the buyer who is buying it for two or three million may decide to buy it not as a personal, not as a principal residence or a personal residence, but as a rental property. In that case, it will have a historical cost. Well, that is a macroeconomic policy. And to follow up on Judge Karakatsinas' question, what could explain the legislator's intention to allow a complete avoidance of, ta- of tax by linking, by considering, by, by saying that this is a employment income as opposed to capital gains? Now why would the legislator do so? First of all, capital gains that you will, will ma- that you will have, and I congratulate you, by the way, uh, for your $4 million house. From, Uh, That was just a hypothetical example. I'm not a real estate expert, Justice. No, it's your fiscal expertise that led you to that, not your real estate expertise. Anyhow, what I was saying was that you have a capital gain, but the, uh, the law, uh, you're not going to be taxed on that. Now, if there is a benefit, Mr. De did receive a benefit,
0: and
2: there is no other benefit aside the one we're discussing in 50. In 54, there's no other benefit. But there is nothing to say that that
4: 422
0: does not apply
2: for the calculation, which may not be the right word, but as to the value of that benefit. And that is the Chief Justice's question too. We have to look at all of it together. Well, let's see what 50 tells us, we're told that the employee who disposes of goods is deemed to have received, in the taxation year in question, deemed to have received a benefit equal to the, tr- the consideration. Now, I could have stock options and were I to exercise those, I could receive a benefit of let's say $5 million. If I exercise them, I'm making the difference between the cost of uh, the option and uh, the exercising those options and then I and then that's added to my employment income and that's a 5 million dollar benefit but 50 says that when I dispose of my rights I'm not looking at fiscal attribution when exercising the options it's when they are uh, there is a disposition the benefit is crystallized not when the options are exercised but when they, when the, when the stocks are disposed of. So even if I did have a theoretical benefit of $5 million, let's say if I sell it for a higher or lower consideration, I will be taxed according to the consideration, the true consideration received. Had the legislator wanted to follow the respondent's thesis, they would have not have used the value of the consideration, they would have said the value of the right, and the value of the right at the time of the donation, there would have been a practically perfect calculation between the, the disposition and the exercise. Question. But the taxpayer who decides to ask for a tax credit is asking for an equivalent amount of the value of the stock uh, options. So in other words, I understand your argument. He's saying that he has ceded a stock option, not necessarily the value of the option, but the taxpayer has asked for the value of the stock options for the tax credit purposes. Answer, he will receive a receipt based on the amount that was truly paid given to the uh, charity, which corresponds to the amount of money he lost, whereas your court concluded that a taxpayer had to be taxed according to e- an economic benefit received, truly received. I have 25 seconds left, but I'm still uh, here to answer your questions. Uh, was that? Thank you, I have no further questions
1: that uh, puts an end to uh, my arguments this morning, and I would ask you to allow uh, the appeal. Thank you. The court will take its morning break, 15 minutes. Cool. Of
0: course. this
1: Please be seated. Mr. Perro Mr. Perro Chief Justice, Justices. The issue before this court is in paragraph 36 of our factum and reads as following. An employee that gifts stock options to a charity according to what is uh, provided in the stock options scheme in the sections forty-seven eighteen and fifty-eight oh seven is eligible or not to. Consider that a benefit, an employment benefit in the calculus of the income. The value of this deemed benefit is argued to be zero. That is what I have understood in the appellants' arguments. I would respectfully submit. that it's difficult to make that proposal make sense with the other arguments in the appellants of factum which are that the appellant has lost income or lost money because of uh, the taxation. The value of the benefit must be established by using 422 And following. I will be dealing with sections 422, 50, 54 before talking about the benefits that uh, would uh, apply if we accept the appellant's position. I would like to begin with a few preliminary remarks. Stock options are a property under Section 1 and the options were granted by BMTC to Mr. De the appellant, in 2000. The appellant became the owner of the options in 2000 and they were part of his patrimony beginning in 2000 as provided by section 1 which includes uh, shares, properties, capital etc. I think it's inarguable that these goods gained value over the years and right before disposing of these actions they were worth around 3 million dollars the appellant did not challenge the argument that these are the very options that were gifted to the charity. The appellant recognized many times that he had been the owner of those, uh, of those options. Now I'd like to talk about 482. Section 1 of the Act, the Taxation Act, is called Income Computation. Section 6 is part of that first uh, division. 422 falls under the title Rules Relative to Computing Income and the subsection called Insufficient Consideration. And so this applies unless there's a contradictory provision to all of Section 1 of the Quebec Act. The objective of the tax policy underpinning Section 1 is to tax taxpayers on the additional value of a property at the moment that it is gifted. Question, Mr. Perrault, the argument on the hermetic nature of section six, this concept of a complete code which is evoked in uh, the federal jurisprudence, how uh, do you explain that based on what you just said, And how do you take into account 50 and 54, which are imprisoned in a way within that text? Answer, well, in fact, it isn't such a complete code as it might appear, and I'll come back to that. But it's important to remember that 422 does not create a taxation scheme or liability, a tax liability, and that's the distinction. When we talk about a complete code in Section 54 that says uh, the employee is not deemed to have received uh, other benefits than those uh, laid out in the present section. So the objective is to distinguish this from other uh, types of uh, taxation. So 422 will only apply in conjunction with another provision, for example, a provision that has to do with tax liability, capital, for example, and those are provisions that we find, we, you can find in uh, part one of uh, the Quebec Act. Question. So if it's not a rule, if I can borrow Justice Colnoyer's language in 64, since this is not a taxation rule. The complete code concept does not close the door to applying 422. Answer Precisely. I'm thinking of uh, the Le No case, but the arguments do not allow us to conclude that uh, the code is hermetic, hermetic and stands alone. I'd like to look at fifty-four with you, and I'll come back to that. But when it comes to the decisions, faire vélo, the Canadian Court of Appeal, it must be read similarly to Justice Cournoyer's interpretation. So you have to set aside other sections that have to do with uh, income taxation and that's exactly what is argued in uh, the Leno case. There's a reference to 261.2b, another section of uh, the Federal Act 261.2b, which is a, a general provision that allows us to quantify income according to section 7 of the federal act. So if we import 261.2b to section 7 of the federal act, then In my opinion, this ousts the idea of having a hermetic code. So, as I was saying, 422 does not create a taxation scheme. Its goal is to compute income and it applies to all provisions in part one, if the legislator, in fact, when the legislator wants to uh, ensure that 422 does not apply, then the legislator does so expressly. It expressly states that 422 does not apply. And the corollary to this is that when you look at the provisions in uh, section 6, mostly 54, it's clear that 422 is not ousted. Question. In your factum, in paragraph 9, you say the Court of Appeals' conclusions must be confirmed. And I would like to know, do you mean only the conclusions? Because after reading your factum, it seems to me that you perfectly agree with all the reasons laid out by Justice Cournoyer. Is that true or not? Answer, almost. When Justice Cournoyer creates a link between the provisions on tax credits and the provisions that we're discussing today, I think his objective was to illustrate that the appellant's position was uh, illogical. So when he says for example that 422 Constitutes a general anti avoidance rule, I would not go that far myself. And I say that humbly, of course. 422 is clear. The legislator uses specific terms and the scope of 422 C2II is not limited to situations that would give rise to capital gains such as the appellant might argue. It is general. If the legislator had wished to add any conditions to limit the scope of that subparagraph, then the legislator would have done so expressly. Furthermore, even if the word consideration does not, uh, fi- does not appear in that section, it appears elsewhere. Furthermore, section 422 is harmonized in 69.1 in the Federal Act, which provides that a taxpayer who gifts uh, property to a charity is deemed to have received a consideration equal to its fair market value. And Section 7 of uh, the Federal Act does not eliminate the implications of Section 69 in the Quebec Act. Question, the word consideration is not uh, absent, it is used in 122ci, so perhaps the legislator did have that in mind. It seems clear to me. If we look at section
2: 54, first of all, as I mentioned earlier, does not set aside, uh, the, this article does not specifically set aside all the other sections of the Taxation Act
4: which take up all the definitions
2: of the, uh, like this arm's length notion and uh, that that is often mentioned in the legislation, but also under section six, including uh, 54, do not specifically set aside uh, 422's provisions. So I think Justice Cazirer, I believe you've identified this uh, this important aspect of the debate, which is under 54, the appellant is not deemed to have received under the legislation other benefits other than those stipulated in this article. So the uh, benefit, I respectfully submit, that Mr. de Groseillier received is the one, under, considered under uh, 6 and 50, which is a deemed benefit received, received because of the system and that is dealt with under 50 more specifically. So there is no contradiction between the respondent's position and the provisions of 54. And. To come back to the fiscal pol- policy's goals, the legislator wanted to ensure that Section 6 would take priority or th- over the other provisions in the, in the law. For example, the calculation under the general provisions under 36 and 37, for example, as well as those dealing with the capital gains in 231 and, and those that follow. The rule under in, under 54, unlike the one in Section 7 of the Income Tax Act, is
4: the,
2: the aim is to avoid double taxation of benefits granted to employees. Your co- question, your colleague invoked not only 50 and 54, but also discussed 52. Do you have comments about, about what he said in that respect? Yes.
4: 52.1. 52.1
2: applies in, in, in case of death, in cases of death. And the words? Of course, we must refer, I'll review it in a moment, a benefit equal to the right, the value of the right. So, because in this case, we can't just talk about disposition. It's really a disposition that carries a presumption that at the time of death an employee who owns rights under 48 is deemed to have received a benefit equal to the value of the right immediately following their death.
4: So there is no disposition, no consideration. We're
2: talking about the value of the right in this case. And
4: an atten-
2: a close reading of uh, the Appellant's
4: jurisprudence tells us about the
2: theory and, and thesis and I understand that Section 6 does not include such a complete and hermetic code that it excludes the application of 422 as stated by Justice Cournoyer. I talked about the Fairly-No case. At the Canadian Tax Court, as well at the federal, as at the federal court, they talk of 261.2B, which is general provision in order to calculate the benefit
4: that is
2: that is being taxed in this case. It's not about choosing the applicable fiscal situation to. Uh, Code to apply to a, f- a specific situation. I would like to insist on a passage in our brief as to that notion or maxim that was mentioned in the case I quoted.
4: That,
2: that is, or the rule, according to which special uh, laws derogate from general statutes. I think that maxim should be used
4: parsimoniously and necessary. only when it's truly necessary. As Pierre-André Coté
2: and Mr. Devina, authors who were quoted in our brief, state, and that can be found in tab M of our condensed book. These authors share our opinion that, and we're talking about paragraph 1272, I'm quoting, which is at tab, you can find it tab M of our condensed book. So 1272,
4: tab M, the principles,
2: and I think we can transpose
4: this reasoning to our case. So
2: new or, or special legislation are simply guides, presumptions of the legislators' intention. Several times, courts have stated that one had to be blindly respectful of principles that cannot allow them to lose sight of the primary objective of the person interpreting, discovering the intention of the legislator. And a little further, uh, Judge Hudson is quoted in the Williams case,
4: This maxim is not a rule of law, but a rule rule of interpretation
2: that gives way to the legislators' intention when that intention can reasonably be deduced in looking at all of the relevant legislation. And then in paragraph 1220, where we quote, when a Justice Cromwell was then a a member of that court.
4: And I quote, Courts presume that legislation
2: enacted by the legislator uh, contain neither contradiction nor inconsistency, and they conclude if there is one or the other that the provisions are so incompatible that they cannot coexist. Even when they overlap, in the sense that they deal with the same, with es- with different aspects of the same subject, they are interpreted in so as to avoid conflicts every time this is possible. So it is my contention that in this case, application of 4.22, in order to adjust the value of the, of the uh, consideration under 50, Leads to no con- con- creates no conflict between the provisions that could ultimately lead to a contradictory result, a contradictory or inconsistent re- result, or an inconsistent application of the law. So, there is no need to set aside 422, nor its application, especially since 422 means to add the value of a consideration received at the time of a donation.
4: The goal sought by the legislator under 422
2: was truly to set aside the risk of uh, double taxation and to eliminate any doubt as to how to describe income coming from uh, stock options.
4: When these provisions were introduced,
2: the legislator's intention was certainly not the complete avoidance of taxation, but a benefit that could be considered as part of one's compensation. Let's move on to 50 now, briefly. Question, before we leave 422, the description
0: given by Justice Cournoyer as to the very
2: broad formulation in
0: 63, you mentioned a few inaccuracies elsewhere. Are you satisfied with the very explanation of the very of
2: broad application of uh, rule uh, uh, of, of 422 and his impression of the legislators intention in applying it to any uh, dis- disposition of goods. Is that statement too broad?
0: message principal
2: it seems to me that his messa- main message is for calculation purposes.
0: it
2: does come into play uh, with uh, my colleague Justice Martin's question earlier. I agree with Justice Cournoyer's statement on, uh, in paragraph 63. I would humbly submit, even if it overlaps with the specific, uh, provision we're discussing here. I'm not trying to challenge you here, I just want, I just wondered, uh, what your opinion was.
4: 422?
2: takes up a general rule on uh, income calculation and applies to all forms of income.
4: Alors, mot sur 50. A
2: word on 50. This one refers to the conditions, elements, aspects that must be taken into account in establishing the taxable benefit, as well as the time uh, of calculation for that benefit. So for fiscal consequences under this, under 50, the employee who disposes or transfers rights under the, under the agreement uh, for stock options, will be deemed to have, is deemed to have received the consideration according to Uh, and will be added to the the employee's uh, employment uh, employment income in the taxation year during which that transfer or disposition is made. The calculation of the benefit is simple. The value of the consideration of the transfer or disposition minus the amount paid for the employee for acquiring those rights. In this case, that value corresponds to the benefit, uh, to the and uh, it corresponds to the amount of credits, tax credits issued by the charities. We're talking about
4: the benefit in, in, uh, and in this case, that
2: corresponds to the bonus, rather.
4: Under 50, the time
2: When the employee is deemed to have received this is established under the general rule according to which the disposition of property uh, gives rise to a capital gain since we are talking about employment income here, as stipulated. And now, I am coming to the interpretation proposed by Mr. de Desgroseillers or the Appellant and in, to my mind, that would lead to inconsistent results. Under, uh, in uh, paragraph
4: 124 in our brief, it's quite clear to us that the
2: appellant should be including in the calculation of their in, uh, employment income under 49, which is part of section 6, of course, the uh, excess fair market value uh, at the time of disposition as uh, at the time of the moments, uh, uh, of the moment that, that they, they required. So,
4: if he had exercised the,
2: the options and had kept them, then he would have been taxed on that benefit. Had he used all of the, uh, if he had exercised all the stock options and then had subsequently donated them, generally speaking, he would have been, Uh, taxed on that benefit as well.
1: That transfer could have been uh, allowed under this scheme, but it was not the case in, in this case at Bar. So if he had transferred the options, he would have been taxed. If these stock options had not been covered in 48, then he would have been taxed on that benefit if he had exercised his the options, which leads us to say, to argue that the appellant's position would lead to inconsistent results. And this leads me to my conclusion. Our position is that the appellant's interpretation is literal. Similarly to the Turcotte case at the Court of Appeal, which is in our condensed book, I argue that the appellant is very literal and we need to apply a purposive and textual approach. Section 6 and 54 have the goal of avoiding double taxation when it comes to purchasing stock options. The objective is not to completely avoid paying any tax which would be owed otherwise. The objective in 422 CII is to tax the additional value of a property when it is gifted. And so, to conclude, I respectfully argue that our position does not is not new, and does not go against the principles of predictability, certainty, and fairness. On the contrary, our approach is a contextual, textual, and purposive approach to 50, 54, and 422, and does not allow us to ignore 422. 422, and its application to adjust the consideration of a gifted property does not lead to any contradiction. Otherwise, we could reach an inconsistent, illogical result. Question. Just a... A question on uh, harmonizing the Quebec and Federal Acts. The title insufficient consideration includes 69.1 in the Federal Act. Is that correct? A little bit like 422. Answer. Precisely, 69-1 in the Federal Act is under the title insufficient consideration. Question, so your position, I understand this is not an issue at BAR today, but is, it's that Section 7 of the Federal Act would not oust the application of 691? Answer, that is our position, yes. Question, the jurisprudence in your condensed book. Uh, confirms this. Anything to add? Answer. That is all. Thank you. Reply.
3: Mon confrère en réponse à une question du juge quasi-
1: My friend answering a question posed by Justice Kazir about 52, said, in the case of uh, death, you can't talk about disposition of a security. But I disagree with his answer. A taxpayer who dies is necessarily no longer the owner of the security. Both the Quebec and federal acts addressed this issue by creating a deemed disposition immediately before the death. That is in 70.5 in the Federal Act and 436 in the Quebec Act. And so we're dealing with a deemed disposition immediately before uh, the death. So we're talking about a capital gains question, but how does that improve your case? Answer. Well, if there's no disposition, then necessarily there is no consideration. And therefore, we cannot read 50 with one In 75 and in 436, there is a deemed disposition consideration and the disposition made at fair market value. And in 75, that leads me to another comment uh, made by my friend. 422 and 69 must expressly be a set aside, but there's no express mention of 422 and 69. If you look at 75, if you look at 436, deemed disposition at fair market value. It doesn't say notwithstanding section 69. There's a very specific section in 70.5 and 436 that implicitly uh, set aside the other section. And I would refer you to B B.Bouitier, 2015, Canadian uh, Tax Court, paragraph 51, that describes the dichotomy between the fair market value at 70.5 and the same concept in 436. There's no requirement that there has to be a specific exclusion for 69 to not apply. 54 sets aside all the other sections that do not apply similarly to the way 245.5 provides that reasonable tax attributions apply, notwithstanding any other legislative text. So even if there's no mention of 69 in 245-5, it is possible to establish the tax attributions without taking into account the other section. Similarly... The benefits quantum was established only in section 26. Justices, it will not be possible to find a set of indicators that all point in the same direction. The best that we'll be able to do is find a certain number of indicators pointing in one direction, others pointing in another direction, because 50 and 69 1 BII entered into force at different time periods with different paradigms at play. The respondent provided zero explanation to justify using value of the right versus value of the consideration in 50, which means we have to look at the consideration that was actually received and during the death in 52.1, since it is a deemed disposition, we don't deal with actual consideration but rather fair market value of the right subject to any questions we ask you to allow the appeal thank
0: you
1: the court will take this case under advisement and will be providing reasons shortly